is absolutely You are the keeper of the house. I think you know about Mr. Montoya. He's in that backyard, I believe, Dorothea. He is in that backyard or he's been disposed of some other manner. Not by me. you'd live where life has something to offer. If you had your choice, you'd live where you were close to work, schools, and affordable housing. Sacramento was recently voted one of the two best places in the country to live. No surprise at all to our nearly one million residents. Now, people are asking, what's been going on with this sleeping giant, the Two River Capital, the seventh largest economy in the world? Around 1988 in Sacramento, it was a time of uh, a real good growth spurt. I mean, people were buying houses and new developments were coming about. But this neighborhood, for the most part, is still the same. There's tons of homeless coming up and down the street. That's where the homeless shelters are. homeless represent a serious human tragedy that is year-round, and the effort to help them goes on. A city report found that one in five who sought help or food was turned away. At that time, County Mental Health had created a homeless task force. Volunteers of America was part of that task force. Our goal was to get them off the street and get them connected with mental health services and a decent place to live. They suffer from paranoia, and that keeps them from going to shelters, from getting into decent living situations. On the very first day, I noticed him. I have it on video. His birth name was Alvaro Gonzalez. Montoya. People called him Bert. I have a son that's mentally ill, and he had a lot of uh, delusions and a lot of fears, and I recognized that in Bert right away. Bert was born in Costa Rica, and he came with his family when he was about 16 to one of the southern states. He began to get schizophrenia at age 16. Do you think if you took medicine for a couple of weeks, it would go away? The medicine makes you sick? His parents had tried to help him and put him in a mental institution, and they gave him a whole lot of shock therapy. When he got out, he left home. He didn't tell his family. I don't know how he made his way to Sacramento. But he did end up at detox. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he was the one person they liked staying there. And so right away I said, well, why isn't he in a place for mentally ill? And they said, no, because some of those houses aren't good and he might not be treated well. Thank you. 
happened to be a place that was so well recommended, so very well recommended by saying there's a wonderful woman there and she really takes really good care of her clients. Dorothea Puente was loved by her community and loved by local politicians because of course she donated their campaigns and things. She would donate to local charities and give them bags of clothing. She was taking in all these people, she treated her neighbors well, and every Wednesday or Thursday was burrito day. And so she was giving free food away to the community. When someone moved into Dorothea's house, Dorothea lived on the top floor, and they lived down below. These were people that someone called the shadow people of our society. Some of the boarders that she would take in uh, were alcoholic. Some had mental disabilities. They had very little to do with their relatives. Out of their social security checks or what monies they had, they would pay for their rent. Their meals were provided as part of that payment. In some of these cases, she became the person that could actually sign those checks and uh, place them in the bank, and which she did. So we went to Dorothea Puente's house to see if it would be okay for Bert. She seemed so sweet. She had a box of kittens. She had little bottles of milk that she was feeding them. And she said, excuse me, I've got the kitties here. And we're really impressed with that. We're thinking, she, she is nice. You know, she's got a box of kittens. When we went downstairs to look at the room, I did meet someone that I was familiar with. His name was John Sharp. He said, well, there's a lot of pluses to being here. You know, maybe it's just a room, but to have a nice place, have some really nice food, it works out very well for us. I was impressed. I thought, this does sound like a good place. And I mentioned it to her. And she said, well, you know, I'm independently wealthy. I just have these people here because I like helping people. In order to live at Dorothea's, Bert was going to get social security checks to pay for room and board. We didn't have any connection with his family. So she said, I, I will be his payee. So I went back to detox and they said, well, let's let him try it. In the beginning, Bert seemed to be thriving under Dorothea's care. And I was very pleased to see him develop friendships within the house and have his own bed, his own recliner, his own TV, which is nice that he had a decent home. Do you like living where you're living now? I did want to keep tabs on what he was doing, so I did call Dorothea to check on Bert. After a few months, she told me that Bert wasn't here right now, that he was in Mexico staying with her brother. There had been a fiesta. I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, that 
It's not like Bert at all. There was something very wrong with that. She said he'll be back maybe on, say, Friday. When I called, no, he isn't here. He'll be back next week. Don't worry about it. Then I said, no, what I'm going to do is on Monday, I am going to call the police and I am going to say there's a missing person here. Monday morning, I come into my office and there's a phone call right away. I pick up the phone and it was a man who said that his name was Don Anthony and that Bert was now no longer at the house. He had come home from Mexico. This is check. In the 1950s, Dorothea worked as a prostitute in Sacramento. And then after a period of years, she became a madam. She was arrested and prosecuted for being both a prostitute and a madam and sent to jail for a short period of time. In 1982, I was in the Sacramento District Attorney's Office on a temporary assignment. The first time that I became aware of Dorothea Puente was uh, a case involving a gentleman named Malcolm McKenzie. McKenzie was an old man that uh, Puente picked up at a bar. They had two drinks together. He then told her that he lived nearby and took her home. When they got to his house, uh, he began to feel very strange, and he lay down, and at that point, he could not move. He said he was absolutely paralyzed, but he was able to see what Puente was doing inside of his apartment. He'd been administered some kind of stupefying agent, but he was able to watch her go through his belongings, take some coins. She came over to him and actually pulled a ring off his hand, and then left. When he reported it to the police several hours later, after he had uh, regained his, uh, his motion, Puente was arrested. During that same period of time, Dorothea was passing herself off as a medical doctor to various uh, elderly women and taking advantage of them. She would sometimes carry around a medical bag to make it look as though she was a practitioner of some sort. She had a stethoscope in there. She had blood pressure cuff. She was not a doctor. She was not a nurse. They were props she was administering some kind of stupefying drug to them because all of the victims reported the same kind of symptoms. And when they awoke, jewelry, coins, checks were missing. And Puente would be cashing the checks. Dorothea pled guilty to five felonies and she was sentenced to five years in state prison. She went to prison in 1982. She was written up in the local media my name appeared in that report, and the day afterward, I received a phone call from uh, a man, and he said, uh, we saw your name in the newspaper. Uh, we think Dorothea poisoned our mother. My mom's name was Ruth Monroe. She had been working at Jumpco Pharmacy for 13 years. The last couple of years, there was this guy that was coming in, trying, kept asking her out. Mom and Harold started seeing each other. He was taking her to visit different bars, steakhouses. Her 
Sophia was a part-time cook at the Flame Club, and she knew Harold. That's how Mom and Dorothea got to be friends. When we first met her, she just seemed like a nice person, real friendly. And then after a while of being around, then that's when she started saying, well, call me Grandma. Mom had a little bit of money, and Dorothea was talking about opening a restaurant, a little cafe at the corner bar. So her and Mom went in on it together. But Dorothea kept saying that it wasn't making money, so Mom needed to put more money into it, more money into it. So Mom would put more into it. It'd be okay for a while, and then it, same thing again. She kept hitting her for more money, more money. And then Harold ended up with terminal cancer. Mom didn't want to live alone, so she had us move her into Dorothea's place as a roommate. I would stop by there every day after work, and everything was fine up until the last three days. The last three days, I saw Mom had a drink in her hand. And my mom didn't drink. Alcohol actually bothered mom. She was allergic to alcohol. And she said Dorothea had fixed her a drink to calm her nerves because the restaurant closed down. She said it wasn't making any money and we don't have any more money to put into it. And the drink, I said, well, what is it? And she said, cream de mint. The next day I get there and Dorothea's sitting at the table I looked at her and I said, where's mom? She said, well, she's sleeping. She's not feeling well. I said, well, I'm gonna go see her. And she said, no, don't go in there, just let her rest. I said, no, I'm not leaving until I see my mom. So I sat down at the edge of the bed, put my hand on her, on her shoulder and she didn't say anything she just kind of just she had her eyes open and then she was like tears were coming down I said mom you'll be okay Dorothea's taking care of you and Dorothea had talked about being a nurse at one time so we felt that she knew what she was doing and that she would take care of her so I'm saying you'll, you'll be okay you'll be okay I'll see you tomorrow give her a kiss and I left that next morning, six o'clock in the morning, was when I got the phone call from my sister saying that my mom died. She got a phone call from Dorothea saying, come and get your mom's stuff, which is an empty purse. Mom had jewelry, she had money, and everything was gone. Dorothea said, your mom gave me everything and she gave back an empty purse. Dorothea had called the coroner and she said that her roommate committed suicide. When they did the autopsy, the amount of drugs that were in my mother were all at toxic levels. She poisoned her and I think it was over time with those drinks, little by little, putting it in her system. 
we went to see the prosecutor, Bill Wood, so that they could pursue a murder charge against Dorothea for my mother's death. My first reaction was I was in absolute shock. She drained the bank account that she and Ruth Monroe held jointly as business partners, and then she killed Ruth Monroe. Unfortunately, it was my last day, actually, in the district attorney's office, so I turned them over to our major crimes unit. They reviewed the matter. The crime lab in Sacramento was not set up to test for certain things in 1982, so there was no way to determine that Ruth Monroe had not, in fact, committed suicide. Fucking little old bitch. Mom did not commit suicide. Dorothea murdered my mother. After Dorothea Puente was released from prison in 1985 for the cases that I had been prosecuting her on, she decided she had to change the way she was doing things. She could not be a caregiver outside of the home. So she started taking in tenants from 1985 forward at 1426 F Street. Was there a mechanism in place at that time to catch someone like Dorothea Puente? There were a lot of mechanisms. She was prohibited by the terms of her parole from having anything to do with individuals as a caregiver. She was totally, um, well, she was totally illegal. But every so often, somebody would come by to kind of inspect and take a look and see what was going on. She knew all the magic words to say to these government officials or people working for social services. Remember, record keeping in 1985 is not what it is today. She had been married four times. At various times, her married name was Dorothea McCall, Dorothea Johansson, Dorothea Montalvo. So sometimes law enforcement agencies didn't exactly know exactly what somebody had on their record. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. So it was about two and a half years that she was running an unlicensed care facility, having people come in and out, providing medications to them, taking their government checks from them, and nobody was keeping an eye on her until 1988. Bert was missing, so I went to file a missing person. But I really fear that there's other things going on in that house that John Sharp talked to me about. In 1988, I was a homicide detective, and I also was a detective in charge of the missing persons unit. An officer went over to 1426 F Street to take a missing persons report. Spoke to Dorothea, spoke to everybody, and they all said the same thing, that Bert had left with a relative. All of them, same story. But one of the boarders slipped the officer a note. John Sharp would tell us later that he didn't know exactly what happened to Bert, but he knew that what Dorothea was telling them to say wasn't true. What did she tell you exactly? She just said, John is going to ask his life for me today. She said, I think I'm going to jail. And she said, the police are coming out. And she said, I want you to tell them that I was gone Thursday and Friday. And that you saw Bert on Saturday. And you knew you hadn't seen him for over two months? And she said, I'll make it well worth your while. And so I start researching who was Dorothea Puente. And 
I find out that she was on federal parole. You know, she was incarcerated for putting knockout drops in individuals' drinks, taking their money and their social security checks. I started to say, wait a minute. It was evident that I needed to get into her house and to talk to her, and I needed to find out what happened to Bert. Judy was very persistent about us taking shovels. Yes, I did want them to go dig. We've got to do something, because I still have a guy missing, and I want to know where he is. you got to do it. My partner and I went to Dorothea's boarding house with her parole officer, Jim Wilson. So we went in. I asked her about Bert. She said that she was expecting us. She went on and told me, yeah, you know, only thing she knows is that Bert had left with a relative. She was gone to church then. I asked her specifically, what exactly was it here at this place that she was running? And I'll never forget this. She looked directly at her parole officer. And she said, Jim, I'm in violation of my parole. And I looked at him and I remember he had like a stunned look. I then asked her if it would be okay uh, if I could search her premises. And she agreed. While I was scurrying around looking under the bed in the closet for Bert, I kept finding blue pills, capsules. And people that have sleep disorders, they take this drug. Her past using drugs to knock out her victims, everything started to gel a little bit. I knew that there was something really wrong here. Before we were getting ready to leave, and I think she felt that it was all done and said, other than her facing a parole violation, I said, oh, Dorothea, one more thing. Would you give us permission to dig in your yard? And she kind of looked at me and says, whatever for? And I said, well, the social worker, I just want to be able to tell her we've searched everywhere, we dug around, and we found nothing. And with that, she just went, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, you can. So we took the shovels. There were three of us, and we started digging three holes. This is a small garden area. It's about 15 by about 20. Goes on to the back. There was some digging in this area, also in this area. At one point, I started finding pieces of garbage, eggshells, um, paper, cigarette butts. As I was digging, I looked up, I saw Dorothea standing out on the balcony on the second floor. And she was just staring at me. And then I started finding pieces of cloth and I would pull them up and they were kind of a light pinkish color. And I kept pulling these pieces of cloth up, so I set them in a pile. But I was also finding, as I was digging, pieces of what appeared to be leather pieces. It basically looked like beef jerky. And then I kept digging and digging and my shovel had struck something hard. I decided to get down in the hole, brace myself, grab this with my hands, and yank on it. And when it broke loose, I could see it had a ball in the end, and it was a femur bone. It was a human femur bone. 
then I could see that it was attached to other skeletal body parts. It got out of the hole, and I knew right away. I told him, we've come up on human remains. What was the meat jerky? It was actually human flesh that had come off of the bone. Going through the dirt, I was finding it and removing it. Sacramento police dug up the backyard of a home at 1426 F Street after receiving a tip that renters there were being poisoned and buried. Police did indeed find some human remains and took the landlord, Dorothy Fuentes, along with her tenants, in for questioning. I had to get to the bottom of this, so I thought, I'm going to have to see if I could press some of her buttons to get her to tell me if, in fact, she knew about what was in the ground or what really happened to Bert. Nothing makes sense here, Dorothea. Nothing makes sense. Everything you said, you can't really substantiate. Mr. McCauley tells me another thing. Mr. Shaw tells me another thing. And I've had a guy that's been missing for at least two and a half, three months. She was emotionless. And she would just look straight into my eyes and answer every question. You know what I heard? I heard, hey, do I see you? Over at 1426 F Street. Killing people and burying them in their backyard. How do you explain the body in the backyard? I don't Twenty know. half feet down. I don't with clothing. I don't and everything know. with it. How? Can you find out how old it is and see that I didn't have anything to do with that? Sir, I don't know anything. I'm going to ask you right now, dear. Are there any other bodies? No. In your backyard? Not that I didn't even know that one was there. But she never flinched. She never said anything. She denied everything. She hasn't been arrested yet, and she has not been called a suspect yet in this case. Police will bring in an anthropologist, oh, a crime stupid. scene expert from San Diego, to supervise a complete dig starting tomorrow morning. We found the skeletal remains on the first day and then we, on the second day, start digging up other areas. We have Ed Smith of the Sacramento County Coroner's Office and Dr. Hilger, anthropologist, in the hole, conducting the excavating. And that is one of the occupants, Melvin McCauley. I heard McCauley yell, Mr. Cabrera, Dorothea would like to talk to you. So I walked upstairs, and she came out round by the kitchen. She says, Am I under arrest? Because all this is making me nervous, and I'd like to go get a cup of coffee over at my nephew's. And I said, well, where is that? And she goes, right over at the hotel around the corner. We didn't have anything to arrest her on. I had no probable cause or evidence to indicate she killed anybody. Bert had only been missing for three months. This wasn't Bert. So I told her, I said, yeah, no problem. She came out, and she was wearing a red coat. She had just a little purse. So after I saw her go into the back of the hotel, I turned around and I walked back. And I resumed digging where I left off. Then I started lifting up. And when I lifted up and it came to the surface, there was a leg in the shovel. I yelled to my commander, we got another one. And he comes running over and he goes, where's Dorothea? And um, I told him, I said, I just walked over to the coffee shop. So he took off. And then he comes back a short time later and he looks at me and he says, where did you say she went? 
And at that time, I thought, oh, no. She's taking off. Leah, fucking old lady, get her, let her go. <laughs> her fleeing the scene, we put out a bolo to be on the lookout to all police agencies. I was following the case hour by hour as the stories were coming up. There was suspicion that she may have fled to Mexico. There was a nationwide manhunt here in the United States. The search goes on today for the manager of a Sacramento boarding house. We had help from Secret Service, FBI, the Marshal's office, the media. I mean, satellite dish trucks. We did everything we could putting the information out there to get her picked up or arrested. When the Dorothea Puente case broke, I got a phone call from family members of Everson Gilman. They were conveying that their father was engaged to Dorothea and that they haven't heard from him and they were nervous since now they're seeing all these bodies being found. Gilmuth had started a pen pal relationship with Dorothea while Dorothea was incarcerated for putting people down with knockout drops. And Dorothea was telling him how she had really taken a look at things and wanted to get out of prison and change her life and get a new start. Right after she got out of prison, Everson Gilmuth came to live with her at 1426 F Street as a love interest. A short time later, detectives from Sutter County, just above Sacramento, contacted me and said, you know, we had a John Doe back in 1986, similar to the type of bodies found in the yard, wrapped in plastic and duct tape. Reviewing now is the plastic that wrapped the body found inside of this box. It appears from all of the evidence that she killed him within about three or four weeks of his moving into F Street, then disposes of him in this horrible fashion by dumping him in a box near the river. How tall would you say a box? Have you measured it or...? Look pretty close to and then sends postcards to his sister for a period of months saying that Everson is fine or he's having trouble with his heart now, but lying to her this whole period of time knowing that he was dead and she'd thrown him out by the river. After she disposed of him, she began to bring in other individuals uh, as tenants where she could exert tremendous control over them in terms of what they ate, what they drank. Consistence throughout Puente's criminal activities uh, is the use of stupefying drugs of various kinds. Dalmain and other kinds of diazepam were involved with all of the victims buried at uh, F Street. Dalmain is a tranquilizer. Montalvo had done time in prison for drugging and robbing people she met in bars. When we saw the news about the F Street murders, we ended up going back to the district attorney. Bill Woods had retired, and at that time, it was John O'Mara. We were hoping he would include what she did to our mother with the other charges that he had against her. When the district attorney, who was going to prosecute the case, looked at the evidence and looked at the similarities, there was enough there to bring that into the fold and charged her with Ruth Monroe's murder. Pointy was charged with nine counts of murder in the first degree, which means she could get the death penalty. The nine were Ruth Monroe, Everson Gilmuth, and then seven victims who were found buried on her property at 1426 F Street. 
What did they have? They had their little little social security check. And they had their life. That's all they had. They didn't have cars. She was killing people on the main street in the capital of the state of California. I don't think any other serial killer has been either that audacious or gotten away with that kind of crime. In the end, I believe it was about money and power. If somehow, for some reason, you were receiving a social security check, it's all right for you to designate me as the payee for that check. And then, of course, if I could continue to get those checks after killing you, and no one knew that you were dead, then I'd just get those checks forever. I think Dorothea picked out people from the street that had no relatives that were there for them. And so, in this vulnerability, it can be taken advantage of. By Dorothea killing these people, she gained $100,000 in total, and she was putting it to use. Donating money to the politicians, free food, and so she was always looked at as a philanthropist who gave a lot, and from that she gained status in the community. That was the power. She was able to operate with nobody ever questioning her. But the clothing that she was giving to charities, that was a clothing that was from her victims. The people Dorothea murdered were Leona Carpenter, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, James Gallup, Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, Everson Gilman, Bert Montoya, and Ruth Monroe. They were real people. Every single one of them. Sacramento landlady convicted of killing three of her tenants in the 1980s has died in prison. Prosecutors say Dorothea Puente stole the social security checks of her elderly tenants, killed them, and then buried their bodies in her backyard. Puente was 82. There is no closure to it. I mean, you have to move on. You still live. But when there's no conviction, there is no closure. After I arrested Dorothea in Los Angeles, when I picked her up on the tarmac, the last thing she said was, Mr. Cabrera, I'm sorry. I've always believed that in that small moment that she was actually sorry for everything, just in that moment. Usually the house that was used in these crimes they're generally raised. They get rid of them and put a park in there or something like that. But in this case, this is a historical home built in 1890, and you cannot take these houses down. It's going to be here forever. Wow. We connected with Bert's family members. We told them that he had passed. 
and how sad it was and that we were going to have a memorial and we would be happy to pay their way to come out and be there for his funeral service. At the gravesite, I did the eulogy and all the people who knew and loved Bert were there. It was um, a very sad ceremony, but I just feel that it was his destiny to expose Dorothea Puente. I just feel that way. So to next reaction, make sure y'all subscribe, man. Like, appreciate you guys coming in, watching. Always, it's every.